This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. The first reading is taken from Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13 through to 21. Now this passage is about the parable of the rich fool. Everyone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, you appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you. Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Hear the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 to 17. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. 
They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. Do uh, grab, I hope you've got one of those uh, sermon outlines here as we begin the first of our three-part series on the myths of Sydney. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, have you ever seen Sydney from a 747 at night? Sydney shines with such a beautiful light. And I can see... Bond You're just glad I'm not singing, right? You can see Bondi through your window, way off to the right, and the curling waves on a distant break, and the sleeping city just about to wake. Have you ever seen city, Sydney from a 747 at night? These are the words of Paul Kelly. Now, he's actually from Adelaide, and he resides in Melbourne. But they're words that, I don't know about you, but they speak a powerful story of homecoming to anyone who's a Sydney-sider. I remember when I was living overseas for a couple of years, imagining just that view, Sydney from a 747, the gleaming vision of this wonderful city, my home, a wonderful place to live. But like all cities, Sydney is founded on certain dreams. It has its foundation myths, the stories that it tells itself about itself, about what it means to live here and to belong here and to succeed here. These myths are powerful and attractive to the point of obsession. They're the things we talk about over coffee, at dinner parties, at the school gate. They are captivating. And in the eastern suburbs, which is, let's be honest, what people think of when they think of the real Sydney, these myths have become our way of life. But are they true? And do they work? Over the next three weeks, I'll be asking that of, the three, of three of the myths of Sydney. This week, dream home. Why are we so deeply obsessed with property? Next week, soulmate. Why do we hang so much hope on the perfect relationship? And the week after, the perfect trip. Why do we have such a thirst for travel? But let's start with the great Australian dream. Now, sometime in January 1836, an English brig sloop called the HMS Beagle sailed through Sydney Heads and into the harbour. On board was a young naturalist called, does anyone know? Charles Darwin, that's right. And in his diary, uh, Darwin, who had gone to the Galapagos Island and observed the inhabitants there, uh, made some observations about the inhabitants of the city of Sydney. Although we were not iguanas, uh, it was um, something perhaps close. At last we anchored within Sydney Cove, he said. The number of large houses and other buildings just finished was truly surprising. Nevertheless, everyone complained of the high rents and the difficulty in procuring a house. Real estate, it seems, has been an obsession in Sydney for a very long time. 
The experts call this the Australian, the great Australian dream. The vision of owning your own house on your own block of land with your own hills hoist and your own lawn to mow. Or if you're in the eastern suburbs, your own lawn for someone else to mow. Home ownership is a sign that you've made it as a citizen, that you're now independent and mature and responsible. It's such an important part of our life plan, our life narrative. It's not nearly as grand, grand as the great American dream. The great American dream is the dream that anyone can arrive in New York with nothing and become a millionaire. It's upward social mobility through hard work and opportunity. Australians, we just dream of our own home. And that's why the great Australian movie is The Castle, right? The story of one family's right to live in their very ordinary home next to the airport, even when the government wants to buy them out. After all, it's in the Constitution. As business commentator Satyajit Das writes, property is Australia's default religion. I don't think he's far wrong with that analysis. The dream home is something we worship. It's an expected part of middle-class life in Australia that you will purchase a home and go into long-term debt to do it, that this will be the most significant purchase you make. Your mortgage will represent your single biggest monthly financial commitment, on average about 40% of household income, and of course in recent months that's been growing week by week. Both parents in a family will work, not always because both want to, but because our economy is entirely geared towards two-income households, as single people well know. When we talk about making sacrifices for our family, we often talk about making, we're often talking about making sacrifices for the bricks and mortar that contain them. And the harbour gives the Australian dream a particular impetus here in Sydney. In his play called Emerald City, the Australian playwright David Williamson has the Sydney cider, Elaine, explain things to Colin, who is from Melbourne. Elaine. Sydney is different. Money is more important here. Colin. Why more so than Melbourne? Elaine. To edge yourself closer to the view. In Melbourne, all views are equally depressing. So there's no point. Then she goes on, no one in Sydney ever wastes time debating the meaning of life. It's getting yourself a water frontage. St Augustine, back in the 4th and 5th century AD, could have been talking about us when he wrote of the Romans. It grieves them more to own a bad house than to have a bad life. And it's this Australian dream that's driving a lot of anxiety in our community about smashed avocado and whether millennials and Gen Z will ever be able to afford to buy a house anywhere near where they want to work. Will the lifestyle that younger people want to live, eating out at expensive cafes and taking overseas trips, ever allow them to save enough money to buy a home? Or have they just given up because the rest of us have priced them out of the market? Now, I should disclose up front that I'm not immune personally to any of this. I live, I should disclose, in a very, very nice house, even though I don't own it. But we do have a mortgage on a house down the coast, so I know something of the joys and the sorrows of home ownership firsthand. But what does this dream say about our souls? Well, if property is our default religion, what does that say about us? In preparing for the talk today, I talked to a number of people, including my old school friend Brad Pillinger, 
who has been selling real estate in eastern suburbs since 1995. My thought was that if you're trying to sell the idea of a dream home, you probably have insight into what we think the dream home will give us, will, will, will lend to us. And one of the first things that Brad said to me is that we think that a dream home will give us an identity. It's a piece of property that signals to everyone else who we are in some way. We hope that our house will be an outward expression of our aspirations and our desires. And it's a signal of our success or failure. We like to think we don't have a class system here in Australia, but we do have a subtle ranking of suburbs. We know what it says about us that we live in Darling Point as opposed to Darlinghurst or the Darling Downs, for example. But it's not just my place in the pecking order. Owning a property gives me a piece of the world to call my own, or at least to call our own. It's our domain. Our homes, that's uh, why, of course, that's the website, domain.com, of course. Our homes establish our privacy, our special protected place in the world. The more of a home we have, the more privacy we have, a place where no one else can intervene or interrupt our lives. And, of course, that quintessentially Australian movie, The Castle, ironically got its name from the old saying that an Englishman's home is his castle. When we own somewhere, we have a place in which we imagine we're free to live as we want to live. Our homes are our own gardens of Eden. But we also want our homes to keep us safe. They are castles in that other sense as well. We live behind walls designed to keep our possessions and our bodies safe from harm and danger. We are physically vulnerable creatures who need shelter and protection to survive. But more than that, in Sydney, we have an unwavering faith in the pro property market to protect our investments, don't we? To protect our wealth. Sinking our lives into bricks and mortar, we, we believe, and I use that word advisedly, will secure us from the economic and political storms that will surely come, so we think. The dream home, then, is a reflection of how afraid we are. But we buy a home, too, because we imagine the joy and the love that these walls are meant to frame. We build spaces to entertain our friends and family. We have rooms that are to be shared with others as we eat and as we relax, because we know that life goes better that way. Our homes, then, as well as being symbols of our fears, as places we can call our domains, expressions of ourselves, are symbols of our deep longing for shared joy. Of course, there's nothing essentially wrong with desiring to own your home. But my question is, does it work as a primary obsession? Does it work as a religion? Does it serve us well? Is it a God worthy of everything we sacrifice to it? Does it give us the security, the domain, the joy and the identity that we are seeking? And I don't think it's particularly hard to show that the answer to those questions is no. Take joy, for example. As someone said to me last week as I was talking about this, uh, this talk, he said, it's amazing, thinking of his own house, how he can live in a $10 million home and still feel poor. There's always a house slightly bigger, slightly better, the slightly better view than yours. 
always an envy appearing to steal your joy. And I'd point one a point as well to some deeper cracks appearing in the facade of the dream home. We know too well that a beautiful home cannot protect you from the failure and breakdown of a relationship that is within it. A home filled with people can still be lonely. And worse than that, the Rose Bay Police will tell you about the prevalence of domestic violence in our local area. People are genuinely surprised to hear it, that such lux listings can be the places of such hurt and cruelty and misery. But too often they are. High walls, it turns out, do not make you safe. We might also, if we've got eyes to see them, notice the ghosts of the original owners of this land we now call our property and sell and buy and develop and divide. Seven Shillings Beach is called Seven Shillings Beach because that's how much they paid the indigenous inhabitants to clear out. We only have to walk just up the road to see those who don't have any place to call their home, who sleep rough. Not much further than that to see what it's like to live in social housing. We should not forget either that the United Nations says that there are 103 million people in the world today who are forcibly displaced from their homes. People fleeing war, persecution, earthquake or drought. People whose houses and homes have crumbled as well ours might too. So it turns out that our dream home may not be as secure as we think and that our dream may well be someone else's nightmare. Well, what would Jesus say if he came to the eastern suburbs today? For much of his life, Jesus, of course, went without a house. He travelled and lived day to day. As he once said of himself, I think we had this reading last week, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he called his disciples to follow him quite literally from place to place, to leave behind the security of their earthly homes in order to follow him. A house was one of those things that could distract them from what Jesus was calling them to, which was a new home that he would show them. And this was the sharp message of Jesus' parable of the man who built bigger barns to secure his wealth, who engaged in a, a great Renault program to expand his portfolio. And of course, it starts with a squabble that we are unfortunately all too familiar with in the eastern suburbs. It's a spat about a will. And then Jesus warns about the danger of greed because he says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Whenever I read this, I think, well, does anyone actually think that their life consists in the abundance of their possessions? I mean, does anyone actually verbalise that? And I think it's one of those things that you would never articulate, but that you would actually, in fact, live. It's a truth in, uh, that you would live according to that we live as if it is the case, even if we don't articulate it to one another. We do act as if our life consists in what we own, especially our real estate. And so it was with the man in Jesus' story. He pursues what seems like a reasonable strategy. He's got a bumper harvest, and so he's going to retire and live off the surplus grain. He needs to build bigger barns in order to contain that grain, and now he's going to just take pleasure in life. Take it easy. Eat Drink, be merry. Why not, after all? We might say, what's so wrong about that? Sounds like a great dream. But the sting comes next. 
because the man is about to come face to face with his mortality. He's about to be stripped of what he thought was really himself and find that none of that was worth anything, not really. His dream of bigger barns was merely a mirage. And Jesus delivers us a brutal truth here. This is how it will be with whoever stores things up for themselves but is not rich towards God. You see, death is the absolute fact from which we would mostly like to hide but with which we all have to deal. We can indeed kid ourselves for a time that the bricks and mortar and their sort of relative permanence compared to human life gives us a kind of permanence too. But it's not true. And the sooner we work that out, the better. Now some of you, I know, have been given the gift of a life crisis to shock you into it. We heard at the men's dinner on Thursday night from Francis Harper uh, about his sudden realisation at the name of, at the age of 44 that despite his outward success and possessions, he was actually turning to alcohol more and more and more in order to fill the hole that was there. A realisation that's taken him on a journey to find Jesus, or rather to discover that Jesus has found him. But here's the question that Jesus wants to ask us today. Are you rich towards God, whatever you happen to own, and whatever you, your address is? Because there's no 2027 postcode in the life to come. It's things of eternity. Is it the things of eternity or the things of these passing moments that drive you? Are you given to the things that God would have done in the world? Or is the bulk of your life, your time and your money, your mental energy given to the pursuit of material things that will not secure you, fulfill you or complete you? But Jesus was not just a critic. He's also come to invite us to a better home. He said to his disciples the night before he died, we read this in John chapter 14, my father's house has many rooms. If you read the old version of the Bible, it used to say my father's house has many mansions, which always sounded bigger than rooms. But that's the point. It's capacious real estate. Jesus says, my, house, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus comes to offer us a place in the house of his father. And it's not for sale. He's not an agent offering us a deal. He's offering us a free invitation, a free gift. This is completely affordable housing for once. And it's a place with unlimited, generous space. It has many rooms, generously apportioned. It's got everything that we long for. Safety, identity, joy. And God invites us to, to share in his gracious rule over his domain. It's a place of peace and reconciliation as members of God's family. If there's any place that should be our dream home, this is surely it. It's what our earthly homes could never give us. So then, if he were here today, Jesus would say, your house is not who you really are. Your address is not your identity. It's not a signal of your true worth. 
We talk in that way, don't we? We say, what's that person's net worth? But as our first reading from Ecclesiastes says, we arrive naked and we leave naked, unencumbered with any of that stuff. If we have anything, we have it only for a time, temporarily, even bricks and mortar. These things do not make us ultimately safe. These things do not identify us, they do not measure us, and they do not make us lastingly happy. They do not fill the longings of the human heart. Misery plus a harbour view is still misery. And in the end, we will all give account to our makers, unencumbered by our real estate portfolios, simply in the truth of who we really are, whether we've been rich towards God or not. So what are you doing to be ready for that? Do you live as though this were true? But whatever house we have, whether it's a luxe listing or not, we should also realise that we have it as a gift, that we are blessed with the housing we have, that it's to be received with thanksgiving and shared with generosity. For one thing Jesus would like us to see is that what we have, we have as a gift. We are blessed beyond measure. God is so generous in giving us this stunning place to live. If we think we deserve to live here, we will not enjoy it, in fact, for what it is. We will not be thankful for what we have. And we will not be generous with what we have. God is generous with what he has and generous with his welcome into his heavenly home. And so Jesus calls us as a sign that we understand God's generosity to practice hospitality, to be generous with what we have been given, to welcome others in, just as we've been invited into the extraordinary home of our Heavenly Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.